This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Please, this morning to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. Verse 9, Jesus speaking to his disciples. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now you would think that as believers, that prayer would be the most natural thing in your life. It would be as easy as breathing. You would think that because We know the Lord, we have been saved, we have been recipients of his grace and his mercy and his love and his compassion. Our lives has been forever changed. You would think that because of that and more, that prayer would be our delight, that we would want to spend much time in prayer. I think one of the regrets that all of us will have one day in heaven is a wish we had prayed more. I wish our prayers, our prayer life, had been more effective. I wonder where we are today regarding prayer. I wonder how my life and your life is regarding our prayer time. I know that the prayer well from time to time gets clogged up And it could be for legitimate reasons. Uh, Your job, busyness, your career, your studies, parenting. Parenting is a full-time job, 24-7 job. And then there's maybe leisure time or pleasure time. And all kinds of things and stuff can crowd in and clog up our well of prayer. And we don't mean it to happen, but it happens. Maybe you could be battling fatigue or a debilitating illness or some chronic illness. And altogether, we we find that sometimes it's a struggle. It's a battle. It shouldn't be. We all know that. But to be absolutely frank and honest today and open, sometimes it is. And we need to deal with it. We need to look at it. Jesus' prayer life was exceptional. It was so different than the disciples had ever known before and anybody 
that in this particular instance, they, as they gathered around him, one of them asked him, he could not keep it in any longer. He says, Lord, teach us to pray. He wanted to know what the Lord's secret was. They were used to the scribes and Pharisees praying all the time. They could see that all around them. They'd been brought up to pray. But there was something about the master's prayers that were different. And as they looked at his life, and as they were with him when he prayed, they were captivated by how Jesus prayed. And so they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And so when they did that, Jesus gives them this model prayer. And it is a model of a prayer. You know, it's often called the Lord's Prayer, but really it's the disciples' prayer. The Lord's Prayer, the one that he really prayed, and the longest recorded prayer he prayed is in John 17, his own personal prayer. So this is not a prayer that he prayed because he had no debts, he had no sins, he had no trespasses to be forgiven. But this was a, a, an index to prayer. You see, in those days, rabbis, and Jesus would have been counted as a rabbi, uh, they, they taught their disciples to pray, and they would give them an index to pray, how to begin, how to end, what to do in the middle. And, uh, and John the Baptist did that. Because in Luke 11, recording this particular incident, uh, the disciple says, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. And so each, each rabbi who had men around them to train them, mentor them, uh, gave them a model to pray. And Jesus was no different. And so he gives them this prayer model. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we are to repeat it verbatim, by rote. It's, it's an index, it's a model. It gives us an idea, some prayer pointers, some ways to think about how we pray. But before we actually get into it, can I say also that it, it's okay, it's fine. In fact, it can be very appropriate for a time when the whole congregation can pray this prayer out loud together in unison. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, sometimes it's a good thing to do. But that's not what Jesus is teaching here. Sometimes that's how it's used, and there's nothing wrong with using it that way, but that's not what he's really getting at. And so let's examine this. But before we do, I, I just want to go back just a couple of verses to, just to give us a context to it. In verse 5 of Matthew 6, Jesus said, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. Those were the scribes and Pharisees who were the religious hypocrites in Jesus' day. You shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Now, He's not saying, by the way, that we, we shouldn't stand to pray. Obviously, that's fine. In the scriptures, there are many modes uh, to use to pray. You can stand, you can kneel, you can sit. In fact, today, if you want, you can drive your car and pray. 
although I wouldn't advise you to bow your head and close your eyes when you're doing that. Uh, but there's many modes, there's many ways to pray. He's not saying that. He's not even saying that we shouldn't pray publicly. Because often we do and should pray publicly. He's not even saying that we shouldn't pray in a public place. You may be in a restaurant, you may bow your head if you're in a group of people or yourselves and just say grace, give God thanks for what's prepared for you. But what he is saying is, whenever you pray, whether it's publicly or in a public place or in a church, don't do it to be seen to do it. Don't do it for a fact. Don't do it with the attitude as, see how eloquent a prayer I am. Because that's what the scribes and Pharisees did. They loved to do it in the synagogue and especially in the marketplace where everybody could see them. Now, there's no question that some people are better at praying publicly than others. I know there's a bunch of people in here, and if I asked you to stand up and pray right now, you would die a thousand deaths because it's public. You're fine in your own room, but don't ask me, Pastor, to stand up and pray publicly. I can't do that. Others would feel very comfortable and be happy to do that. But what Jesus is saying is, do not pray publicly for a fact. Don't be like the hypocrites, because they have the reward, and the reward was everybody thought they were pious and holy. He says, that's their reward. That's what people think. Well, okay, that's their reward. But he says, don't you do that. But when you pray, go into your room. Do you have a room? Do you have a place? Do you have a corner in your house where you can be alone to pray? Maybe your bedroom, it may be your office, maybe your study, it may be your loo, I don't know. But somewhere where you can be alone for those moments where you're shut in, just you and God, and you pray. So find a space, find a room. That may vary from time to time, depending on your circumstances of your home, particularly if you have a big family who wants to be in every room, especially the one you're in. So make sure you have a lock on the inside. But somewhere for a moment or two that you can just be alone to pray. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father in secret. Now, I've said before that sometimes the hardest thing to do is to shut the door. And I don't mean the physical door. Metaphorically speaking, closing the door of your mind. Have you ever found that when you go to pray, your mind, your thoughts are everywhere? <laughs> You go there with the best intentions. You want to pray. You want to talk to the Lord. And then suddenly your mind's away racing off somewhere. And it's hard sometimes to shut that door. Sometimes you'll have to shut it 20 times before you really get into prayer. Sidlow Baxter, the late Sidlow Baxter, godly, godly man, great, great preacher and teacher, authored many books. Some of them are classics in the Christian world. There was a time when he was really, really struggling with prayer. And he wrote about it in one of his books. And his own inimitable way, he, he tells the story of what happened. 
He says, as never before, my will and I stood face to face. Now he said, first of all, I should say, he said, the part of him that wanted to pray was his intellect and his will. The part of him that didn't want to pray was his emotions. And the struggle between wanting to pray and not wanting to pray was a real battle for him. So he says, as never before, my will and I stood face to face. And I asked my will the straight question, Will, are you ready for an hour of prayer? Will answered, Here I am, and I'm quite ready if you are. So Will and I linked arms and turned to go for our time of prayer. At once, all the emotions began pulling the other way and protesting, We're not coming. I saw Will stagger just a bit. So I asked, Can you stick it out, Will? And Will replied, Yes, if you can. So well went, and we got down to prayer, dragging those wriggling, obstreperous emotions with us. It was a struggle all the way. At one point, when Will and I were in the middle of an earnest intercession, I suddenly found one of those traitorous emotions had snared my imagination and had run off to the golf course. And it was all I could do to drag that wicked rascal back. <laughs> A bit later, I found another one of the emotions had sneaked away with some off-guard thoughts and was in the pulpit two days ahead of schedule preaching a sermon that I had not yet finished preparing. Every preacher knows that one. And at the end of that hour, if you'd asked me, have you had a good time? I would have to reply, no. It's been a wearying wrestle with contrary emotions and a truant imagination from beginning to end. And what is more, the battle with the emotions continued for between two and three weeks. And if you'd asked me at the end of that period, have you had a good time in your daily praying? I would have had to confess, no. At times it seemed as though the heavens were brass and God was too distant to hear and the Lord Jesus strangely aloof and prayer accomplishing nothing. Yet something was happening. For one thing, Will and I really taught the emotions that we were completely independent of them. And also one morning, about two weeks after the contest began, just when Will and I were going for another time of prayer, I overheard one of the emotions whisper to the other, come on, you guys, it's no good wasting any more time resisting. They'll go just the same. That morning for the first time, even though emotions were still suddenly uncooperative and they were quiescent, which allowed Will and I, Will and me to get on with our prayer undistractedly. Then another couple of weeks later, what do you think happened? During one of our prayer times, when Will and I were no more thinking about emotions than the man on the moon, one of the most vigorous of the emotions unexpectedly sprang up and shouted, Hallelujah! At which the other emotions exclaimed, Amen! And for the first time, the whole of my being, intellect, will, and emotions were united in one coordinated prayer operation. All at once, God was real, heaven was open, the Lord was luminously present, the Holy Spirit was indeed moving through my longings, my prayer was surprisingly vital. Moreover, in that instant, there came a sudden realization that heaven had been watching and listening all the way through those days of struggle against chilling moods and mutinous emotions, and also that I had been undergoing necessary tutoring by my heavenly teacher. <laughs> Only said Lou Baxter could have wrote it that way. And so he says, Jesus, when you go into your room and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. Hmm. 
and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. There's something about praying in the secret place. Because in the secret place, when there's only you and him, then there is no pretense. You don't have to do anything for a fact. You can just be yourself. Open, honest, and just tell the Lord exactly how you are, how you feel, where you are, and he'll listen, and he'll help, and he'll encourage. But that's the beauty and the benefit of the secret place. You know, there's some prayers that you can't pray publicly, you can't pray in a small group even, you can't pray in the prayer meeting, but there's other prayers you can't because they're private prayers. They're to do with you and you alone at that moment. Maybe something you're struggling with, maybe something you desire, maybe an emotion you're trying to deal with at the time, and you can only share it with the Lord. And you can only do that in the secret place. Then he says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Whatever that may entail. Maybe the Lord will reward you in a way that will be public acknowledgement. Maybe you've been praying in secret about something or someone or whatever the case may be for a long time. And then suddenly God rewards you openly. And everybody sees the answer that they didn't know what you were praying about, but they see the, the fruit of that. And so God has got a way of rewarding us openly for private praying. And when you pray, he says, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Vain repetitions. Now that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray the same thing over and over. When Jesus said, ask and seek and knock, the tense of the grammar is continually asking and seeking and knocking. <coughs> Paul prayed three times about his thorn in the flesh. Jesus in the garden before his crucifixion, he prayed a couple of times basically the same prayer. So, so that's not vain repetition. Uh, it becomes vain repetition if we do it mechanically, just by rote, with no feeling in it, with just uh, a sense of duty rather than a delight continually. You know, the cults, they, they, have, their, they have their prayers, they have their mantras, they have their incantations uh, over and over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, and they think they shall be heard for their much speaking, Jesus said. I think I said to you before, I had a cousin, and she was small at the time, and uh, she said that she prayed this prayer, that what we call the Lord's Prayer, and Monday she prayed it seven times, and that did her all week. <laughs> I think that goes on to the class of vain repetition. And then another man, he told me that he says when he got the groceries on Friday, he prayed over the groceries, and he says he didn't have to say grace all week. <laughs> Vain repetition. 
Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. Doesn't mean we shouldn't ask. Of course we should. Even though He knows what we're going to ask before we ask Him. But it's good to ask Him. How many times our children, when they were small, came to us to ask us something we knew fine rightly what they were going to ask. We could answer it before they even asked it, but we wanted them to ask. It's good to ask, isn't it? Then he said, in this manner, therefore, pray. So here is the model prayer. Our Father in heaven. By the way, I will not get through this this morning. Just in case you're panicking whenever another 15 minutes you're looking, oh boy, we're going to be here at about 2 o'clock today. God willing, I'll, I'll finish it tonight. Our Father in heaven, now we, we probably know or we ought to know that as far as the, the disciples were concerned, the way that Jesus used the term Father was entirely different than they had ever been brought up with. In the whole of the Old Testament, the term Father relating to God as Father is only mentioned 14 times. And always in relation to God as the Father of the nation. And so they perfectly understood that, that he was the Father of the nation or even Father of creation. But the way that Jesus spoke it was different. In the four Gospels, Jesus uses the term Father in speaking about God 70 times. And 17 of those times are in the Sermon on the Mount alone. So this captivated them. This was unusual. This was different to their ear. Uh, Jesus was so personal with the Father God. He was so intimate that that was not their experience. That's not how the scribes and the Pharisees prayed. But it's how Jesus prayed. And even though they had watched him perform mighty miracles, and even though they had listened to him every day, teaching and preaching to them and to the multitudes, but it was this business of how he prayed that really, really got their attention. They wanted to know teach us to pray like that. And so Jesus used the term Abba, Abba Father, which was a, a term that they would use relating to their own earthly father as they were growing up. Their earthly father would be Abba. And that's the term that Jesus used. So you can see how this was unusual to them, to their ears, and how personal it had become to Jesus. And, and the disciples picked up on that. Because if you begin to read through the New Testament, you'll see it again and again. In 1 John 3 and 1, John, the beloved disciple, says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Hallelujah. And so the, the penny had dropped and when Jesus was back to the glory and they were being led by the Spirit, then they began to pray this way too. That God just wasn't the father of their nation or the father of creation, but he was their personal father in heaven, spiritually speaking. 
In Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7, Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Adoption is a wonderful, wonderful teaching in the New Testament, and I haven't time to go into that this morning. I've done it in the past. It basically means that we have adopted into God's family. We have all the rights and the privilege and the responsibilities of full-grown sons and daughters. And because you're sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, the way that Jesus did. The spirit of his son, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And so he said, our Father in heaven. Notice, our Father. Our Father. Not just my Father, but our Father. And the reason for that is because our prayer life is interdependent. What do you mean by that, David? Well, it means that even though we pray vertically to God, but how we treat our brothers and sisters horizontally will affect our prayers vertically. How we approach our Father and how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ is directly related. And I'll show you more of this in a moment. And so this is why this model prayer, and you'll see in a moment, in the middle of it, speaks of forgiveness. Right in the middle of it. Like, it's almost like out of context. Jesus suddenly starts speaking of forgiveness. Why would he do that? Because he knows if we don't forgive, it's going to affect our prayers. And even after he shows them to pray this prayer, even when he's finished that bit, if you read on, he comes back to forgiveness. In case they missed that point. So it shows you how important this is to the Lord regarding forgiveness. And so a relationship with the Father is not just Godward, but it's also manward. Not just vertical, but horizontal. In fact, for us men who are married, 1 Peter 3 and 7 says that how we treat our wives will have direct bearing on our prayers, that our prayers be not hindered. Hmm, it's gone very quiet. So how I treat my wife, how you treat your wife will have an effect on your prayers. They're interconnected. And that's the way it is. Our Father, and not just our wives, our brothers and sisters here, but even further afield in the Christian church. And one of the things that's so pleasing about in Moira at this particular time in our history here where the churches has come together, and isn't it nice to get to know other believers in this town? People maybe have seen walking up the street or in Super Value for years, and we never even knew they were a believer. We might always know their name, but we know their face now, and we know they're believers, and that's wonderful. And then when we come together, it's just 
tremendous. Our Father in heaven, God is not limited to time or to space. His throne is in the heavens. He who put the stars in place is not governed by any lack of resources. <laughs> he has an entirely different perspective than we have. Now, you know I love things relating to space and astronomy and all that stuff. I'm not going to bore you with all that. But just to mention, I was watching an astronaut, one of the ones who actually had been on the moon, stood on the moon. And very few people in the history of this earth has ever done that. They're an elite group of people. And this particular one said that, he says, you know, when I was on the moon and I was looking up at the earth, when you're on the earth, you look up to see the moon. When you're on the moon, you look up to see the earth. And he says, he described it as that blue-green marble in the inky blackness of space, half lit by the sun. And he says, as I looked at the earth, I thought to myself, everything I love, everything I own, everything I've ever known, it's happened on that little blue-green marble. And he says, in that instant, I got a, a totally different perspective of life on earth. For me, he says, it just changed in that moment. God is in his heavens, the earth is his footstool, he's a different perspective. We're on earth and we're struggling and battling with all kinds of things, stuff that happens in life, our jobs, our studies, our careers, maybe being laid off work, maybe debilitating illness, all kinds of stuff happens on earth. And sometimes because of all the things that's happening, we, we lose our perspective. But God never loses his. Hallelujah. Never changes. He sees it differently than we see it. Isaiah 55 and 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, said the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. I have a different perspective. The reason why I say this is because whenever we're in prayer and we're struggling and we're battling with different issues in life, either within ourselves or within our family or whatever the case may be, and we can lose perspective, think, God, you're my Father in heaven. You see things differently than I see in them. You see the end from the beginning. You know exactly where I am. You know how to get me out of here. You know how to change this. You know how to do this. And look at God's perspective. Then he says, hallowed. It's an old English word for holy. Hallowed be your name. The Lord has many names. And his names reveal his nature and his character. And I can't go over all of his names today. Because there's lots of them. But I'll mention just a few. And to hallow his name, to exclaim that his name is holy, that he is righteous, that he is almighty, that we announce that, that we declare that. 
some of his names. Jehovah Elohim, the eternal creator. That's a good one to remember in these days when the, the whole idea of a creation is lambasted and tried to be debunked and laughed at and mocked and scorned that there's no such thing as a creation that God has made. There's, it happens spontaneously. It evolved. You're a fool if you believe there's a God in heaven who made all this stuff that just happened. And I'm thinking, who's the fool? He is the creator of the ends of the earth. Adonai Jehovah, the Lord, our master. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provider. Jehovah Rophika, the Lord, our healer. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord, our peace. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. Jehovah Shama, the Lord is present. Jehovah Ruhi, the Lord, my shepherd. Jehovah Elion, the Lord, most high. And on and on and on you could go. And so when you pray and, and, and you think of some of these names and, and maybe you're feeling alone in the battle and the struggle of life and nobody understands and where is God and he's not near and I can't feel his presence. I don't know what's happening. God, do you hear my prayers at all? Are you listening? Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is present. He is there. Did he not promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you? I'll be with you even unto the end? You're struggling in a, a need that needs to be met and you're wondering how in the world can this happen? Jehovah Jireh, the Lord is provider. Hmm. Maybe you've sinned, maybe you've fallen. You've asked the Lord for his forgiveness but you don't feel clean. You feel ashamed. But then you think, he's Jehovah Sidkenu. He's the Lord, our righteousness. The only reason I can call myself righteous is because he made me righteous. Not that it's in me to be righteous. Not at all. Sinner saved by grace. Nothing to boast in, nothing to brag about except his righteousness. You think of the names of our Lord. Yeah. You know, the shepherd and the chief shepherd and the great shepherd and the shepherd and the bishop of our souls. And he's the bread of life and he's the water of life and he's the light of life and he's our redeemer and our savior. And, and just even thinking of, of those names, you began to pray differently. Then he said, your kingdom come, your will be done. When we pray, your kingdom come, yes, there will be a time when God's kingdom will physically, materially manifest itself on this earth. We know that from scripture. But right now, the Bible says the kingdom of God is within us. The only expression of the kingdom of God on earth is within the believer in Christ. And that has to be manifest. It has to be shown. 
So what about the kingdom of God is in our lives that's operating daily in us that gets shown to the world out there? And that's the big challenge for us as believers, isn't it? It's okay us all talking like us in here, these four walls, but when you go out there tomorrow morning into the workplace, how's that kingdom in you showing? Because that's where it needs to show, isn't it? So when we pray our kingdom come, we're asking for God's reign and rule to be manifested in our daily lives, that God's kingdom principles and priorities will be evident. How, how do you know that his priorities and his principles of his kingdom are operating in your life? Well, let me ask you a question. How much time how much of your resources, how much of your abilities, how much of your thoughts are focused on the kingdom of God or in this life, in this world? Think of the gauge. What way is it going? Because that will tell us how important the principles and the priorities of the kingdom is in our life. I know we've got work, I know we're responsibilities, I know we're parents, I know we've got families and all of that there. Most people has that. That's not an issue. But above and beyond that, what are priorities, what are principles that are in our lives that relate to the kingdom of God? And he says to pray that your will be done. Some people and some of us are scared to pray, your will be done in my life. Because you're thinking, if I pray that, God will send me to Timbuktu, and I don't want to go to Timbuktu. Hmm. I don't particularly want to go to Timbuktu either. But I've learned a long time ago that God's will is the best for me wherever it may be, should it be Timbuktu. But sometimes we're afraid that he maybe asked me to do something I really, really don't want to do. <sighs> maybe he'll ask you to do something that you never thought you could do. And you find you can do it with his help. It becomes a wonderful thing. So he says, to pray that his will is done in our lives continually. To know that you're in the will of God can cause you to handle so much stuff because you can say, God, as far as I know, and if I'm not, please tell me, but as far as I know, I'm in your will and I'm walking your way. And that gives you the strength and the grace to handle so much. God's will is always the best for us. Paul talks about the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. And that's God's plan for you, that you may know his good and acceptable and perfect will for your life. And I guarantee you, it will be good and acceptable and perfect if you do it if you do it. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, there is no resistance, absolutely no resistance to God's will whatsoever. There was in the dateless past when Lucifer rose up to usurp God's throne and God dealt with him. But from then to now to forever in the future, there is no resistance to God's will in heaven. When God speaks and God wants something done, he has myriads of messengers that will immediately, unhesitatingly, without quibble, carry out his will perfectly. But not so on earth. Not so on earth. This earth is in rebellion against God. And boy, it's very rebellious right now. Because everything that this word says that we hold dear in these scriptures is being confronted, is being mocked, is being blasted. And what they maybe don't realize, they're shaking their fist at Almighty God and defying him. This little puny earth, this little blue marble, and the inky blackness of space shakes its little fist at Almighty God. <laughs> Whenever Jesus came to this earth, you know, he came to Jerusalem. If any city in the world should accept it, Jesus, it should have been Jerusalem, but they rejected him. If any people on earth should have embraced him as their Messiah, they rejected him. And what did they say? We will not have this man to rule over us. And whether it's said or unsaid, that's the mantra today to people and people. We will not have this man to rule over us. We will not receive, we will not accept his word. We want to live our lives our way in our time. We want to do what we want to do. We will not have this man to rule over us. And that's why many times people will not come to Christ to be saved because they have lifestyle issues that they do not want to change. And they don't want him to rule over their lives. The reason why you and I are saved today is because at one point we realized we want him to rule our lives. And we laid it down for him to do that. Ah, Jesus said, when he looked out over this city, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as hens gather chicks under the wings, but you were not willing. We will not have this mantle over us. See, your house is left unto you desolate. Even we ourselves are sometimes stubborn and complacent when it comes to God's will. But he wants it done on earth as it is in heaven. He wants us to immediately, unhesitatingly, 
without any quibble to accept his will in our lives. So what is the will of God? Well, many, many things. The Bible is full of instructions regarding his will. But there's one overriding thing about the will of God that you cannot miss when you read the scriptures. Peter says this, 2 Peter 3, 9, He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The number one thing God wants men on this earth to do is to repent. To turn around in our thinking, in our hearts, in our ways, in our attitudes, to turn from our lifestyles that very often have no place or time for God to turn to Him and receive Him and live for Him and love Him. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to provide a way of salvation so that we had something to turn to. We could turn away, but we had something to turn to, someone to turn to. And so John the Baptist, right at the very beginning of his ministry in Matthew 3 and 2, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And thousands came to John to be baptized, to turn away from that dead religious lifestyle that was bringing them death, to repent, to turn to God in a new way. Jesus' ministry. Remember John baptized Jesus in the Jordan? Then he went into the wilderness for 40 days where he was tempted by the evil one. Then he came out of that into Galilee to preach and enter Capernaum. And Matthew 4, 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same message. Exact same words that John said. Repent, for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand. In Mark 1, 14 and 15, John the Baptist had been put into prison and Jesus came to Galilee to preach the gospel, the kingdom of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's a recurring theme in the New Testament. Why isn't it preached more today? It was right at the very heart of the message of John, of Jesus, of Peter, of Paul. Peter, his very first sermon on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.38, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Paul's ministry in Acts 17, he's in Athens. He sees all these statues of God's he says, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. And right at the very end of the Bible, 
the last book of the Bible in Revelation, there's an image of Jesus standing in the midst of the seven churches. And only two of those churches he commends. But what does he say to the other five? Therefore, be zealous and repent. So the message is still the same at the heart of it. If only we would repent and turn from and turn on to it, our lives would be radically changed and different. And so we need to submit our will to his will and receive Christ as our Lord and our Savior. And whenever we do that, truly do that, then our lives will be radically changed forever. And so Jesus begins his prayer laying it out. Notice how he begins, and we're going to close with this. Notice what he's saying. He's addressing the Father. Before we ask him for anything, we address the Father first. And he talks about, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. So right at the beginning of this, the prayer is directed. He says, direct your prayer to the Father and think about his name. Think about his will. Think about his kingdom. And then when you do that, then you can think about your needs. Because he goes on to say, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. You see how it changes? We first bless the Lord, think of him, then we think of ourselves. And of course it ends, doesn't it? For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. So he ends how he began, directing our thoughts back to the glory of God. So now that we have considered that, God willing tonight, we're going to look at those other four things. Starting with our daily bread. Because God is really interested in our daily lives, on our daily needs, our daily bread. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.